You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So this episode is number 38 in our series on the life of Christ by which is read by brother Paul Creswell and the book in question is brother Melvin Melva Perkis's book of the same name a life of Jesus and so this audio book is a remarkable book we now enter section 7 which is toward Calvary. We hear the cold hard logic expressed by Caiaphas, the ruthless and manipulative high priest of the day. It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Little did he realise the awful but true prophetic application of his words. Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 7 Towards Calvary. Chapter 1 But Where Are the Nine? The resurrection of Lazarus had profound repercussions. Historically, it led directly to the death of Jesus. Some of the people who had witnessed the miracle told the Pharisees what they had seen. The Pharisees passed the information to the council, and from now on it was the Sanhedrin itself which took steps for the apprehension of Jesus. The Sadducees were more concerned with the political effect of the miracle. Lazarus seems to have been a prominent man. The Passover was near. They could not ignore the possibility of an insurrection which would bring upon them the retribution of Rome and lead to their own downfall. Caiaphas, the high priest, cast aside the querulous arguments in the council chamber and summed up the matter in clear, cold logic. Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. The beloved Apostle John, looking back upon these days many years later, spoke of the prophetic nature of those words, but showed also their double application in the great redemption which was to be achieved in gathering together in one all the children of God. Meanwhile, the counsel of the high priest was confirmed, and action immediately followed. It was determined to arrest Jesus and put him to death. Any man knowing his whereabouts was to report to them immediately. As the preparations began for the final Passover, 
Jesus left the city and went northwards into the mountainous country near the town of Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. The retirement would afford him the last opportunity for solitary communion with God. It would also give him time to prepare the disciples for the events of the coming week, although in his love and understanding he was to make a careful arrangements that his final exhortation and encouragement should be reserved for the few hours before his arrest. There was little interruption in this mountainous country. Although the Passover was approaching, the pilgrims were keeping well to the east, avoiding the Samaritans. The little company had reached the borders that divided Samaria from Galilee, and were approaching a village when their attention was drawn to a group of men. As they drew nearer, it was evident that in spite of their anxiety to attract attention, they were also anxious to keep their distance. Over the still air came the concerted cry, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It was evident that Jesus had come across one of those colonies of lepers that were dotted over Palestine. They huddled together in a common bond of loathsomeness. Jew and Samaritan knew no enmity here. One of the many distressing features of leprosy is the failure of the voice. But under the stress of their need, these ten men made themselves heard. Steadily Jesus drew near. Go, he said, show yourselves to the priests. Once more we wonder at the way in which Jesus suited his instructions to the needs of those who came to him. His was no conventional healing. He was always more conscious of the spiritual need than the bodily infirmity. The ten looked down at their scarred and pitted flesh. There was no sign of a cure. Yet this man was telling them to act as though they had been cleansed. Here was a call to faith, not in words, but in deed. They turned and began their journey towards the village, and Luke records, As they went, they were cleansed. Presently Jesus saw one man coming towards him, a man who was excited. His features were not familiar. His clear complexion gave no indication that here was one of the pitiable wrecks who had stood before him less than half an hour ago. When he spoke, his tone was strong, full of thankfulness. With a loud voice he glorified God, and reaching Jesus, he fell at his feet, giving thanks. There was no need for Jesus to look up and scan the countryside. He knew this man was alone. Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? No, only the Samaritan had returned to give thanks. Not far away the other nine were rejoicing in their release but they had forgotten the source of their healing. Go thy way, Jesus said, thy faith hath made thee whole. 
the Samaritan had been more deeply cured than his fellows. The word of the Lord had penetrated beneath his scaly flesh and touched his heart. How often our plaintive cry is heard before the throne of grace! Yet when responsive blessings flow, how many retrace their steps to Jesus, and falling at his feet glorify his Father! Thankfulness rendered to God and manifested in our actions toward men is as rare as it is seemly. Sometimes the Samaritan teaches us the lesson. When Jesus reached the adjacent village, he found the people dumbfounded at the sight of the lepers in their midst. The Pharisees, obviously impressed, came up and asked him when the kingdom of God should come. But it was too late to ask that now. In a few days' time the Passover will be held, and the King will be crucified. It cannot now come with observation. Men will no longer be able to say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The disciples were puzzled by his words, and so Jesus explained them. The time was at hand when they would desire to see the days of the Son of Man, but would not see them. He was to suffer many things and to be rejected of this generation. But the day would come when the Son of Man would be unmistakably revealed in his kingdom. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. He spoke to them of the dangers and the false alarms prior to his coming. He exhorted them to be loyal and courageous. Their attitude in the difficult days ahead was to be one of prayer. He told them the parable of the unjust judge who was pestered by the constant pleadings of a poor woman. After many refusals, he finally righted her wrong, because her repeated visits were bothering him. And shall not God, said Jesus, avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? About this time Jesus noticed, probably in the larger body of his disciples, a marked degree of self-righteousness among some. It was made more distressing by a tendency to despise their fellows. To these Jesus addressed a parable conveying a pointed lesson for all who suffer from a presumptuous imagination of their righteousness. There's a footnote here. It is evident that this parable was not addressed to Pharisees, but to disciples. Two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. To the Pharisee this was always a cherished occasion. Majestically he walks towards the most prominent place, and satisfied that he is conspicuous, he begins his prayer. 
His rich voice echoes resonantly through the temple. God, I thank thee. He begins with apparent reverence. But it is evident that this approach is only a means to his own glorification. I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. He looks around him complacently. His eye rests upon the humble figure of a publican, almost hidden in the shadows, a figure pathetic in its self-effacement, head bowed, hands beating on breast in an agony of penitence. Nor even as this publican. He relates his virtues. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. In his abundant righteousness he condescends to offer more than God desires. But he is entirely oblivious that the very things he offered were designed to emphasize his poverty and need. His prayer concluded, he makes his slow, self-satisfied, important way from the temple. He has had his reward. He has prayed with himself. His words have echoed round the temple and have reached his ears again, bringing a complacent smile to his lips. But God has not heard his words. He is listening to the heart-broken cry of the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Though he stood afar off in the shadows of the temple, he was near to God. He was learning that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And learning this, peace was gently flowing into his heart. He went back to his house justified. Everyone, said Jesus, that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. It was singularly appropriate at this time that parents should bring their children to him to be blessed. Their simple trust made a satisfying contrast to the sufficiency of man. But the disciples knew how tired Jesus was. They also thought they knew that he was preoccupied with sterner problems. Such an interruption was therefore undesirable. They discouraged the mothers, rebuking their eagerness, dismissing their children. How little they understood him. Can we not see the tired eyes light up with joy? The stern lines on his face softened. Gladly he took them into his arms and blessed them. Surrounded by happy children and contented mothers, he looked at his disciples. Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, shall in no wise enter therein. Book 7, Chapter 2 He Went Away Sorrowful Whilst Jesus was happily engaged with the mothers and children, a young man stood watching him.
he was rich in possessions and good works. In spite of his youth, he had become the ruler of the local synagogue. The more he heard of Jesus, the more convinced he was that, in spite of his religious fervour, there was something important missing in his own life. He was a scribe who had the virtue of sincerity. He was therefore susceptible to the warnings he had just heard. As Jesus moved away from the little ones, leaving happy smiles and peaceful hearts behind him, the young man ran towards him, and forgetting his own prestige as a scribe, kneeled at his feet. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Always sensitive to the spirit of a man's approach, Jesus laid hold of this form of address which had in it just a suggestion of flattery. The young man had many opportunities for perceiving the goodness of God in the Scriptures, but his knowledge of Jesus was only a few hours old. Why callest thou me good? There is none good save one, that is, God. Then Jesus directed him back to the things he knew so well, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Here was the point at which the pilgrimage must begin. To love God and keep his commandments will always be the whole duty of man. The young ruler listened as Jesus recounted the commandments he knew so well. Long before he had finished speaking, the reply was ready, All these have I kept from my youth up. Had he sat with the multitude on the slopes overlooking the lake of Galilee a year ago, and heard the Sermon on the Mount, he would not have answered so confidently. In a moment Jesus would show him how wrong he was in his artless assurance. But he was sincere. Although he thought he was keeping the commandments, he also knew in his heart that something was missing and that knowledge had brought him to Jesus. Now it prompted him, in the face of the answer he had received, to ask, What lack I yet? Looking at him, Jesus saw an earnest and genuine young man, unsullied by the complacency of his kind, aspiring after righteousness with the fresh vigour of youth, humble in his search. Beholding him, Jesus loved him. There was indeed one thing lacking, and lacking it the young ruler lacked everything. By one act he could supply the deficiency and prove beyond a doubt that he did love God with all his heart and his neighbour as himself. If he failed, then he would show how he had erred albeit unconsciously, when he said he had kept the commandments from his youth. One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. 
By this simple test you can prove all. Become poor and show that you are prepared to serve God and not mammon, and that you do indeed love your neighbours as you love yourself. Ah, here was the true test for him. The difference between the formal observance of the commands of God and the real translation of them into the terms of everyday living involving sacrifice. Jesus had shown him why, in spite of his steady obedience to God's laws, he had knelt at his feet, feeling his insufficiency. Now the issue was inescapable. He professed to love God. He had great possessions. To test his loyalty to God, his riches must go. He looked at Jesus. It was hard to disobey him. He thought of his treasures, his estates, his servants. It was harder still to obey. He turned away. He went back to the gods he had chosen. And Jesus, though he loved him, watched him go. How gladly the young man would have served him on any other terms. If only the sacrifice he demanded had not been so great. Perhaps as he went slowly away, he looked back longing to see some gesture of compromise. But he would only see sorrow and love on the face of one who so dearly wished that the choice might have been different. This is not an incident we can easily dismiss. Its challenge must recur throughout our lives. Other things besides great possessions come to us and cause our loyalty to God to relapse into formal worship. Externally everything is normal. But in our hearts we know that there is one thing we lack, one sacrifice we must make, one cherished friendship, ambition or acquisition must go. We make the decision in our Master's presence, knowing that he is watching us. There is tender love in his eyes, but no sign of compromise. We hear his voice, if you will be perfect. Give it up, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. There can be no following without sacrifice. That we may receive the word of life, Jesus pronounces the sentence of death upon those burdens which make it so hard for us to follow him. The disciples must not miss this lesson as they watched the young man go back to his pathetic treasures and his shallow worship. Verily I say unto you, Jesus said, turning to them, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples looked at him in astonishment. He made his words plainer. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
These words of Jesus covered not only the rich, but the poor also. The rich man glorifying in his riches is far from the kingdom of God, but the poor man trusting in his hard-earned pittance is no nearer. Indeed, the poor man may clutch his few pounds more tightly than a rich man his thousands. The emphasis in each is upon the same thing. Our trust must not be centres upon riches, great or small, or upon honour or men, but upon God. The disciples realised that his words included them. They asked him, greatly astonished, Who then can be saved? With man, he answered, it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. No man in his own strength can attain unto the salvation that God has prepared through grace. But the work of grace is made more difficult when men's eyes are diverted from it to the glittering but temporary treasures of the world. In the sequel to this incident there is a sad commentary upon the limitations of the disciples. They should have been grateful that, by the call of Jesus, it had been possible for them to forsake everything and follow him, and thus be more ready for God's grace. Peter, however, and perhaps he was speaking for several others, thought not of God's grace, but of his own sacrifice. Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? He had watched the rich young ruler fail where he had succeeded. What is to be the compensation for his sacrifice? He had failed to learn the lesson of the parable which Jesus so recently told him of the servant's duty to his master. The lesson that when we have done all, we are still unprofitable servants waiting upon the goodness of God. The young man's question, what lack I yet, would have been more worthy of Peter's lips than his own. What shall we have, therefore? But Jesus was content to acknowledge the renunciation. Ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Even in this life, divine compensations far outweigh a disciple's sacrifice. Though he suffer persecution, so deep will be his fellowship with his brethren that the cumulative blessings and possessions of all will be enjoyed by each. And in the kingdom, when the earth is renewed in holiness and glory, they will share in the righteousness of God's beneficent reign. But, said Jesus, reminding Peter of the danger of presumption, Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. 
he made the warning clearer by telling them the parable of the husbandman who hired labourers to work in his vineyard early in the morning and at the third, sixth, ninth and eleventh hours. At the end of the day he gave to each the same reward for his labours. This caused criticism among those who had borne the heat and burden of the day. But the husbandman justified his action. Is thine eye evil because mine is good? Taken in its context, the lesson is that the work done, whether for one hour or twenty, bears little relation to the payment at the end of the day. The disciples fishing on the lake were idle in the marketplace in the sight of God until they were called to his service. Once in the vineyard, their reward was out of all proportion to their work. Peter's, what shall we have therefore, assumed a relationship between the things they had left and the reward they had earned. No such relationship can ever exist. Paul brought home the lesson of the parable in a brief sentence. By grace ye are saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.